Well, good evening to you. It's the 23rd of November. That means Tuesday, the day which was supposed to be the deadline. Well, in fact, is the deadline uh, for the constitution of the new councils around the country after the local elections. Lots of interesting uh, developments there with the DA taking most of Gauteng and, well, it looks like uh, many other parts of the country in collaboration with its temporary allies. Allies who said they're not part of the coalition. It's really crazy stuff. But uh, later in the program, we'll hear from Helen Ziller, uh, the chair of the Federal Council of the DA, on how this is all likely to roll. Talking about crazy stuff, Jose Matthews, the son of ZB Matthews, an anti-apartheid icon who was exiled in the UK, brother of Naledi Pandor, perhaps, uh, well, by many people's opinion, the best performing of Sora Ramaphosa's cabinet members. He, Jose Matthews, has been ejected or certainly put on gardening leave by the chair of the uh, PRAZA, that's the Passenger Rail Association of South Africa, because he apparently owns, has dual citizenship. Now, in the Constitution, you're allowed to have dual citizenship, so it's very surprising to hear that this is what is going on. But, well, stranger things have happened. We delve into what might be behind all of this chaos with Paul Hoffman of Accountability Now. And then later in the program, Justin Rowe Roberts uh, managed to get hold of the chief executive of PPC. Justin? PPC, one of the darlings of the JSC in 2021, Alec. Not so long ago, if we have to rewind 12 months ago, this is a company in financial distress proposing a capital raise in the form of a rights issue to shareholders. They managed to avoid that. They managed to get things right operationally, sell off some non-core assets. The company's in a really, really strong position. But the most interesting thing to come out of the interview with Roland van Vanen is that the government infrastructure drive, he is not seeing it. I don't understand it. Surely PPC is one of the first beneficiaries. Any uptick in construction you would think would filter into the, into the cement industry. Well, sure. You need cement to build buildings, don't you? And roads and everything else involved. So uh, we're looking forward to that interview a little later in the program. And then we'll also be hearing from our partners at Standard Bank on the Power Pulse program. Tonight they brought in a couple of the uh, suppliers who are participating in Power Pulse, which is a program where if a company wants to go into solar power, and who doesn't, given all the um, issues we're having with Eskim at the moment, then Standard Bank have put together this online platform where they have pre-vetted the suppliers, and because they prevented the suppliers, they're quite happy to give funding against these solar power projects. So it's proving to be extremely popular and quite an innovation. So all of that coming up in the program over the next 60 minutes. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The DA has swept the mayorship of Ikurileni and the city of Johannesburg, with the city of Trane expected to go the same way. The result surprised both the DA and the ANC after coalition talks between the former and smaller parties broke down over the weekend and no formal agreements were signed. While the DA looks to be upsetting the ANC by taking as many as five of the eight major metros in South Africa, with no formal coalitions, the position of power is volatile and the opposition party will be forced back to the negotiation table with the parties it rejected to ensure stable governance. Tax experts say that South Africa's tax secrecy laws contribute to public mistrust of the South African Revenue Service. While SARS is tasked with reporting criminal activity to relevant authorities and investigating tax crimes, there is no way for the public to know whether this is happening. The public has seen SARS go after compliant taxpayers through audits, but there is little to no evidence that something is being done to target actual tax evaders and other criminals. 
Over the years, an impression has been created that politically connected individuals are untouchable and the fight against transparency exacerbates this. Government is fast-tracking plans to develop South African-owned satellites that will focus on connectivity and tracking, says Communications and Digital Technologies Minister Kumbuzo Hunchaveni. Addressing a technology conference, Hunchaveni said the department is considering ways to condense the satellite program, which would typically take between eight and ten years to develop. She said that this rev- revised program would hopefully be ready to launch in just three to four years and that this will be dependent on access to funding. According to a commission established by President Sol Ramaphosa, the satellite would create an enabling environment that opens opportunities for a shared economy that would empower all Africans to change their material social conditions and alleviate poverty, inequality and youth employment. And now it's back to Justin for the market report. Thanks, Nods. The JSEL share index was flat at 70,700. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 87 cents to the dollar, 21 rand 22 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 86 cents to the euro. Gold is lower, trading at $1,791 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $80 a barrel, and one Bitcoin will put you back 900,000 rand. The financial news, shares of investment holding company Brait were on track for their worst day in 20 months on Tuesday morning, after it said it will tap shareholders for 3 billion rand to refinance its debt. The group, whose largest shareholder is Christo Visa, intends to issue as many as 3 million convertible bonds at 1,000 rand each, which can be exchanged for 440 of its shares apiece. This is expected to save a 200 million rand in interest costs for its 2022 financial year. In the morning trade, Braid shares slumped 12.5% to 3 rand 96 rand, having earlier lost as much as 22%. The group was still set for its worst day since March 2020 when COVID-19 was shuttering gyms, a bleak prospect for the owner of Virgin Active. Braid, however, said on Wednesday that Virgin Active, 45% of its 18 billion rand portfolio, had seen all of its territories return to operation by the end of October. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, September 23rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. U.S. President Joe Biden has nominated Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell for a second term. Our U.S. Economics Editor, Colby Smith, will talk about that decision. And our U.S.-China correspondent, Dmitry Sevastopolo, will talk about his latest scoop on China's hypersonic missile technology. What's really interesting here is it's not clear if the U.S. is able to do this kind of technology. In that sense, it's almost more of a Sputnik moment. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need... U.S. President Joe Biden has renominated Jay Powell for a second term as chair of the Federal Reserve. The move is a vote for continuity at a delicate time for the Fed and the U.S. economy. It comes despite harsh criticism from progressive Democrats, notably Senator Elizabeth Warren. She called Powell a dangerous man for not being tough enough on banks. Our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith, says that didn't end up being a factor in Biden's decision. Just because Jay Powell's tenure at the Fed uh, during his first term was seen as so successful. So, yes, on the regulatory front, there was a very gradual scaling back of some of those post-global financial crisis regulations. But in fact, I think people in assessing Powell's time at the Fed pointed to his success in navigating the U.S. economy through one of the worst contractions really since the Great Depression during uh, the COVID crisis last year. And even um, throughout this point now in the U.S. recovery, he's really been seen as this kind of steady hand guiding um, the economic recovery through this elevated period of inflation. And I think in a lot of ways, that continuity really did over shadow any kind of criticism that was lobbed his way on the regulatory uh, side of things. So Colby, with Powell remaining at the helm, what does that mean for monetary policy? Well, the Fed is at a really interesting juncture. We're seeing this very slow and subtle policy pivot from them in a way. Over the summer months, um, you know, you constantly were hearing that inflation is transitory. 
You were also hearing that the Fed was going to approach any kind of policy normalization or move towards that in any way, shape or form in an extremely slow fashion. Now, we haven't seen a complete divergence from that approach, but on the margins, the comments that you're hearing from various senior officials is definitely giving the impression that they are taking inflation a bit more seriously, a bit more sensitive to the current economic backdrop. So another thing Biden did was to nominate Lel Brainerd as vice chair. What's the calculation behind that move? And was it in a way an attempt to provide some balance to Chair Powell? Well, Lael Brainerd was always seen as one of the Democratic Party's, you know, most accomplished uh, economic policymakers in a way. Also within the Fed, uh, she's seen as a leader in her own right as well. So I think she was always seen as someone that would be elevated to a senior position um, within the institution. And she was really even a, a top contender for Powell's position as well. Certainly on the regulatory front, she is seen as a balance to Powell. Um, so during her tenure as governor, she came out against many of the reforms and adjustments to banking regulations that the previous vice chair of supervision, Randy Quarles, spearheaded. And, and those were changes that Powell had endorsed as chair of the Fed as well. What Brainerd did really was she dissented on many of those decisions. So she wrote kind of formal opposition to some of those adjustments. And I think in a lot of ways that won her a lot of plaudits from progressive lawmakers who were critical of Powell's stance on regulation and his bent towards deregulation in a way. So I think Brainerd's nomination to vice chair is definitely a signal that the Biden administration wants to take regulatory matters a bit more seriously. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. The FT has new details on China's hypersonic weapons test this past summer. It included a technological advance that enabled it to fire a missile as it approaches target, traveling at least five times the speed of sound. No other countries are known to have done this. And Pentagon scientists were caught off guard. I'm joined now by our U.S.-China correspondent, Dmitry Sevastopolo. He's been breaking the news. Hi, Dmitry. Hi. So what is the significance of this latest development? Well, I think you need to kind of step back and put it in the context of what China did on July 27th. It did several really significant things. First, it launched what's called a hypersonic glide vehicle into space. Now, that sounds very technical, but it's basically a kind of spacecraft that's not unlike the space shuttle that flies at over five times the speed of sound. So on July 27th, China launched this HGV on a rocket system that's able to approach the US over the South Pole. And that's really significant because most of the US missile defense systems are actually focused on the North Pole. So this means that China can now deliver a nuclear weapon to anywhere in the US. But really the most significant part of this test was what you just described, which was the hypersonic weapon flew around the earth and as it was coming over the South China Sea, it fired a missile during flight. And that's the capability that no nation has ever mastered. And it is incredibly difficult to do that at such high speeds. And that's why the Pentagon is kind of scratching its head, work, trying to work out how did China do this? And they don't, I think, know the answer yet. Yeah. I mean, you write in your story that they fired a missile as it was approaching its target, traveling at least five times the speed of sound. Like, I can't even get my mind around the idea of five times the speed of sound. So how would you describe that to somebody? Well, what's amazing is that to fire a missile from another weapon, you have to kind of open a, a bomb bay or a missile bay and fire something out. But when you're traveling at those kind of speeds, the constraints of physics, you know, the aeronautical constraints are very, very difficult to overcome. So when you open a, a bay that's going to fire a missile, that in itself has a huge impact on the flight of your weapon. So the fact that they were able to master that and shoot something out is baffling. And it's not clear if it was an what the Pentagon would call an air-to-air -air missile, or some people in the Pentagon think it's designed to fire down and take out U.S. missile defense systems that are positioned on ships in the Western Pacific. So the Pentagon is still trying to work out exactly what it is, but the capability itself is uh, what they think is just stunning. And is the significance really that because it's so quick, there is another country that would be able to neutralize it when they detect it going off? Well, it's actually less the speed. So when people hear five times the speed of sound, they go, wow, and it is quick. But an intercontinental ballistic missile goes much quicker than that. The difference is a hypersonic missile 
is maneuverable. So it can evade targets, it can change its trajectory, makes it much harder to track and makes it much harder to shoot down. So it's a combination of it being pretty fast and the fact that it can fly, you know, like a fast airplane, uh, which makes it very, very potent. So what are your sources saying now? How distraught are the U.S. military officials and how much of a Sputnik moment is this? Well, recently, General Mark Milley, who's the top U.S. military officer, said it was very close to a Sputnik moment. And that sparked a lot of controversy. But at the time, people didn't realize that he was really referring to the hypersonic weapon firing the missile. That was the kind of the, the key technology. And I think if you think back to 1957, when the Soviet Union put a Sputnik satellite into space, you know, they demonstrated a capability that no one else had done so far, even though the U.S. probably at the time could have done it. What's really interesting here is it's not clear if the U.S. is able to do this kind of technology. In that sense, it's almost more of a Sputnik moment. So is the U.S. planning any kind of response now? Well, I don't think there'll be an immediate response to what China has done, because frankly, you know, both countries are consistently and, and over time developing, testing new kinds of weapons. But what I think it does do is reinforce concerns in the Pentagon that the Chinese military is expanding rapidly and making huge technological advances and in some areas has pulled ahead of the US. So I think, you know, on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are going to pay attention to this. And people who say the US is not investing enough to uh, counter China will use this as one example why they need more money to develop uh, new kinds of weapons. So I think it'll be part of the debate, but I don't expect the US to kind of do anything in the near term to respond to this test itself. How does this affect U.S.-China relations and particularly the U.S. strategy towards China? Well, I think it comes at a really interesting time. And I say that because a couple of weeks ago, the Pentagon released a report on the capabilities of the Chinese military. And they revealed in there that China is really building up its nuclear forces. It's expected to quadruple the number of nuclear warheads it has by the end of the decade. And you're seeing a big shift and a suggestion that Beijing is, after five decades, abandoning a nuclear posture that's called minimum deterrence. So the combination of the buildup of nuclear forces, these new hypersonic weapons and glide vehicles that can carry nuclear warheads, means that the US clearly doesn't have nuclear superiority over China in the way that it would have done in the past. And what you have now is something that the experts call a kind of mutual vulnerability and some people in the U.S. are very worried about that because what it means is if the U.S. and China entered a conflict over Taiwan, the Chinese could essentially neutralize the ability of the Americans to threaten nuclear weapons as part of that conflict. So it has lots of different strategic implications. But really, the bottom line is it underscores just how quickly China's military is modernizing. Dmitry Sevastopolo is the FT's U.S.-China correspondent. Thanks, Dmitry. Thank you. Before we go, Uber is adding cannabis to the list of items people can order through its Uber Eats app, though for now, customers still have to pick it up. Nevertheless, it's the first time Uber is offering direct access to buying the drug. The company claims the move will reduce the illegal market for cannabis and the number of drivers on the road who are under the influence. The service will start on Monday. For now, though, it's only available to customers in the province of Ontario, Canada. Cannabis is still illegal under U.S. federal law. You can read more in all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, it was a night of extreme surprises uh, yesterday. Helen Ziller, the federal chair of the Democratic Alliance, is with me. Did this come as a surprise to the DA as well and to yourself, or were there negotiations going on behind the scenes that none of us knew about? Well, obviously, there's always a lot going on behind the scenes when you are moving up into a critical election like this. But I have to be absolutely frank, this outcome took us entirely by surprise. Is it worrying? It's very interesting. And it does not make governance any easier. You must understand that in many of these places, we don't have stable majority coalitions. 
we have parties that voted for us on the day, but are not tied in in any way to a program of action or a plan or a strategy or even conflict resolution mechanisms. So we could go into every single council meeting as a minority party that happens to be in government and that may or may not be in government by the end of that meeting. Now, that is not obviously the very best way to go into a bold program of service delivery and implementing your manifesto. It makes it extremely difficult. And so what we have to do is, in more and more places, to try and consolidate formal coalitions that are based on written coalition agreements and that have a joint plan of action to take the city in which that particular government is forward. It's extraordinarily difficult to do that as a party that happened to to win an election, but that does not have the majority of the votes, and that is expected to deliver. It's very, very hard. So the negotiations begin again, but probably in more earnest than even before uh, the appointments of the mayors. Well, indeed. I mean, now we have to try and see where it is possible to establish proper majority coalitions. And in some places, let me be quite frank, it is not possible. We have said that we will not go into coalition with the EFF or the ANC. And that leaves us with opposition parties that we're very happy to go into coalition with. But in some places... All the opposition parties together won't be as much as the ANC unless the opposition parties include the EFF. And that creates a massive dilemma for us. I said in all the debates around Johannesburg that the choice was not between the DA and Herman Mashaba or between Herman Mashaba and the ANC. The choice was essentially between the ANC and the EFF, and that is exactly how it played itself out. So the arithmetic isn't in your favor, particularly in Johannesburg. Well, in many places, the arithmetic isn't in our favor. I mean, the bottom line is if you want to form a stable government, you have to get a coalition that can together put together enough seats to have 50% plus one That is what you need to take decisions, to pass budgets, to pass bylaws, to implement your policies. That's what you need. And if you don't have that, it makes it very precarious because you keep on having to rely on the support of your opponents. And, of course, that can change from meeting to meeting. And then in most places, except the Western Cape, we have a very hostile province to deal with as well. So we must realize what a challenge this is going to be, and people mustn't euphorically think, well, there the DA is, the DA's won, the DA can now implement its manifesto, the DA can now appoint all its people. No. We also inherit municipalities and administrations full of ANC cadres and full of people with vested interests in maintaining tenders, contracts, and the power over appointments to take those critical decisions. So it is an enormously challenging task. And while everybody is sitting here wanting to crack open the champagne and have a lovely evening, a lovely day of it, let me tell you that I'm sitting here wondering how this little dog that caught the bus is going to manage it. Moving to KwaZulu-Natal, we were again told that the IFP had a pact with the ANC, and that appears now no longer to be the case. Was there any work behind the scenes there by the DA to change the IFP's mind? Well, I would not let the DA take credit for this because there's so many other factors involved. Obviously, we wooed the IFP hard. We needed them in Johannesburg. We worked with them. We tried to set up a coalition government with them, stable government, in Umtlatuzi, which is Richards Bay. It's a crucial um, industrial hub, and we would very, very much like to govern that with the IFP. So we did a lot of work there, and we put a lot of effort into it. The IFP did a deal with the ANC, 
but faced revolt from their own members on the ground, which shows you you can't go into these things just through leadership talks. I mean, let me tell you frankly, if we in Johannesburg had agreed to make Herman Mashaba the mayor, we would have had a revolt from our own caucus who'd experienced him before and told us in no uncertain terms this is not happening again. So in coalitions, you're not just sitting there thinking of the best chest moves at the top and how you can take this place and govern that place. You have to take your people along with you. And my understanding with the IFP is that they failed to take their people along with them. It was a revolt on the ground. And then also the main highway to Ulundi, as I understand it, is called the Mangusutu-Busalesi Highway. And the ANC was threatening to change the name of that highway. And, of course, the IFP said, well, if you do that, no deal is on between us. Then everything is off. If you can try and see maybe five, ten years into the future, how are you seeing all of this playing itself out? Well, this last election was a watershed in that we brought the ANC below 50%. Now, that is an enormous psychological barrier to breach. And now the ANC is probably going to lose most of the metros, if not all the metros. We have Mahali City coming up soon. We have a range of other metros coming up soon. We lost some smaller towns by tiny margins. I mean, in Fuleni, we lost by four votes or something ridiculous, which is quite extraordinary. That's the whole Val Triangle, you know, for Rinach and Funderbell Park, all of that area. And so the ANC, everybody now knows, can be beaten and can be beaten solidly in many places. Now, that takes us over a psychological threshold. And you can never go back to the status quo ante where the ANC seemed unbeatable. Now, the ANC is entirely beatable everywhere. And that changes the game in politics. It does, however, seem to be a little bit like anyone but the ANC at the moment. So the challenge, no doubt, is to try and show that there's better governance available elsewhere. Well, that's an absolutely enormous challenge, given the context, the huge instability of minority governments, the muscle flexing of the EFF that can change its mind from meeting to meeting, the hostile administration the hostile provincial government, and often, let's be absolutely honest, hostility between people in your own caucus. Now, to hold that together is a very hard thing. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. We had exactly that in Cape Town when I was the mayor of a seven-party coalition there in 2006. And nobody must think this is a walk in the park and that you just get in like you do in a new job where everyone's wishing you well, you know what your task is, you get on with it, and you succeed. Here, it is literally like walking through a minefield blindfold, to use that old journalistic metaphor, because you never know when you're going to step on a mine that's going to blow up and that can any second from any direction with enormous force. And the lessons that you might have learnt during that difficult time in Cape Town that can be applied elsewhere? Well, the lessons that I learnt is get the very best people around you. Get the best person that you can to advise you. Get a really good lawyer because the laws governing local government are extremely complex and they all relate to each other and they're coupled with lever-arch files of regulations. And nobody coming into a job new can know all of those. Even if you've read them, you can't know them and understand how to apply them in so many complex situations. Then you have to make sure that you keep your coalition partners close. And crucially, you have to keep on communicating with your caucus to keep them on board. Then you have to make sure that there's a management system to align the administration to your manifesto and your plans. And it literally takes a good two years before you even 
get rolling. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Paul Hoffman from Accountability Now joins us on a saga that is causing a lot of interest, Paul, talking to people that I know they believe there's a witch hunt going on uh, for Jose Matthews. He is the chief executive of Praza, the uh, Passenger Rail Association. What are you making of this? It's difficult to uh, come to a conclusion because there's so much up in the air and so many uh, stories on the street. What what we know for sure is that Leonard Ramatlakani, who has drifted into the position of chair of Prasa, having been a uh, a politician all his uh, life and a member of parliament at various stages, what we have is him in his capacity as chair putting up two reasons uh, for for the gardening leave that Matthews is now enjoying. The first being uh, the question of the non-disclosure of his uh, dual citizenship, part Brit, part South African. Apparently, uh, when he was employed back in February, Matthews just wrote SA citizen and did not mention his British citizenship. Why that should be material defeats all uh, logic because this man happened to live in in the UK because his father was an exile. His sister is a cabinet uh, member in South Africa. So if he's a security risk, <laughs> let's hope the rest of the family isn't. There, there, there seems to be absolutely no materiality to the non-disclosure of his British citizenship, which makes you think that they are trying to throw the kitchen sink at him and will resort to any maneuver in order to keep him on gardening leave long enough to get bored and want to just move on with his career rather than, than stay. So then the question is, well, why do they want to get rid of him? And rather mysteriously, uh, Ramatlakane talks about contractual obligations giving giving rise to the uh, <laughs> to 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 the suspension, and he doesn't say what they are, and there's a lot of speculation going on around what that is all about. It's also known that some of the whistleblowers at Prasa uh, who went to uh, the Zonda Commission have not been treated well by Prasa and that uh, they, they are not back in their jobs as they had rather hoped to be and that this may have something to do with uh, with the, uh, the suspension of Matthews. And then the other story on the street is that uh, Ma- Matthews has been setting aside procurements that do not comply with the Constitution on fair, equitable, cost-effective, transparent, and competitive. And that is upsetting the board of Prasa because he uh, is uh, not uh, playing ball with the CADA deployment in Prasa and not allowing the a state capture party to continue in Prasa. I wonder why a man with a master's degree in public administration from Harvard should allow himself to get involved in a, a mess of this nature. The gravy train being derailed. I mean, I suppose it's quite a nice analogy to use when you're talking about a passenger <laughs> rail service. As, as I have it, the Passenger Rail Association of South Africa has really um, uh, succeeded to to the metro rail. It's it's all part of the the family that used to be the South African railways and harbours, and th- that was 
uh, split up and uh, separated out. And now we have the Ports Authority and we have Transnet and um, Praza has been kept separate from the freight rail. So freight rail is Transnet, Praza is passenger rail. So Porsche Derby has got no jurisdiction here, but surely Pravin Gordon would have jurisdiction over Praza. Yes, certainly he he is the shareholder's representative. He is the minister in charge of, of public enterprises and the board should be reporting to him about what is going on there. But it's very difficult uh, on on what is officially in the public domain. Just relying on uh, Ramat Lakhani's press statement, as uh, as recorded in the uh, in Business Day, for example, um, it's it's a question of the materiality of his citizenship, which looks to me like a complete red herring. The man has been there since February, for heaven's sake. Now suddenly, he's he's, he's a security risk. I don't think so. And then this contractual obligations part of it is mysterious and uh, ambiguous and very difficult to uh, to unravel. So time, time will tell. Ramat Lakhani then, presumably, because Pravin Gordon is the minister in charge, would have been appointed by Gordon. Yes, that's correct. This this is this is part of the attempt to clean up the act of the state-owned enterprises that have been sites of state capture. But when you think about it, it's it's deployed cadres all around, and uh, it depends on which faction the cadres belong to as to whether things are going to work as they, they should or whether they're going to be a continuation of, of state capture. Getting back to Jose Matthews, and he is the brother of Naledi Pandor, one of the most admired mm. members of our cabinet, and of course the son of Z.B. Matthews, who's a great icon in the anti-apartheid struggle. So he's got all the credentials. You say he went to Harvard. He got an undergraduate degree from Warwick University, which obviously happened while his father was uh, in, in exile, and then he has this postgraduate Masters in Public Administration from Harvard, according to what Mother Google told me about it. It's not that easy yeah. to get into Harvard, and but I guess you've got to have the, the brains to do that. And you wonder why he would take a job like this in the first place. Uh, yes, payback time. If we assume that he is as pure as the driven snow, then he was actuated by um, by the, the best of motives in uh, seek, seeking to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. But but if he is a, uh, a typical deployed cadre, then he sought deployment there so that he can have his turn at the, the dining car on this particular train. And Ramat Lakhani uh, employed there in that role to clean it up. Uh, presumably, Pravin Gordon has to has to say something one way or the other. I'm, I'm sure that the, um, uh, th- that the matter needs to be driven to a head rapidly. And uh, that can be done by uh, seeking clarity from uh, Ramat Akhani as, t- as to what he was talking about when he spoke so mysteriously about contractual obligations. And I'm sure that in the interests of openness, accountability and responsiveness, which are all set out very deeply in Section 1 of the Constitution as informing, as foundational values, the way in which this country is meant to be run, uh, Pravin Gordon will be doing just that and saying, OK, please, uh, Mr. Aramatrakani, can you explain to us what exactly is going on here? The investigation starts this afternoon at 3.30. I'm not sure if you saw Business Day this morning, but they are already advertising for a new CEO. Isn't that somewhat unusual, given that the current CEO is only starting to be investigated? Yeah, it, it seems that they uh, are somewhat premature with that. I did get hold of Peter Harris, the attorney for Mr. Matthews, and uh, he mm-hmm. said his client has absolutely no case to answer for. And uh, he's, what he's being accused of is complete nonsense. I suppose the question no, at Praza yeah. is which, who, who's being exposed? Is it, is it yeah, the, who's the, the good guy? Or the who's the bad guy? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's very difficult to, uh, to, uh, to work out. Um, certainly Matthews has never crossed my radar before this um, incident, which 
would seem to suggest that he has not previously been involved in shenanigans of state capture. And if, if there is conflict between him and the board, then it, it, the, the underlying cause is obviously that uh, he is seeking to achieve objectives in a particular way, and they are seeking to achieve objectives in a way that is inconsistent with the way that he is going about it. Who is right and who is wrong? Well, Peter Harris is an old uh, campaigner, and he's unlikely to go on record to, uh, to, the, uh, to the media saying that his, his client has no case to answer if, uh, if that is not the, uh, the position. He would, he would be much more likely to be very reserved and unforthcoming in relation to queries like yours if, if he was concerned that his client is in trouble. I can't see any trouble at all in relation to the materiality of the uh, non-disclosure of the British citizenship, especially as it's raised in November and he was employed in February. So it, it, it obviously has something to do with this contra- mysterious contractual obligations part of the story. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, the Power Pulse series has been very interesting. We're getting towards the end of this season, if you like. We're on episode seven. Last time around, we were talking about how homeowners can successfully invest in residential solar PV solutions. Uh, so you can keep the lights on and when Eskom goes through its load shedding blues. Today, we're going back to commercial applications. And it's really good to have Maudine van Rooyen from Standard Bank with us. Maudine, uh, your portfolio within the bank, what is it that you look after? Thanks, Alec, for having me. So my portfolio is Power and Sustainable Solutions, where we support clients in the green economy with renewable energy. And we've also got with us today a couple of your clients, uh, Errol and Mike. Uh, Errol Dorman, who's the CEO of Dorman Projects, and Mike, uh, who's his uh, colleague, uh, that's Mark Kubik, who's his colleague at uh, Dorman Projects. How did you guys get involved in the first place with Power Pulse, uh, Errol? Uh, we've been working with Standard Bank on a number of projects that predate the Power Pulse, probably by about two to three years. I think when funding solar was very complicated, Standard Bank has always been always had a, a good understanding of renewable energy. So I've started projects with them in the Eastern Cape. We've done a couple of successful projects together. Maureen, let's kick off, though, by maybe you can give us a little bit of background. When it comes to the nuts and bolts of making an informed decision on Power Pulse, clearly your clients, it's not always smooth sailing. What are they struggling with when people come on for the first time or start looking into using the platform to enable them to put forward a project, a solar PV or renewable project? What obstacles do they hit? So, Alec, unless a client is part of the sector and well-versed in energy, it's extremely difficult for them to understand how a solar PV system will result in positive cash flows. It's very difficult for them to know upfront how the system should be spec'd, how to accurately compare solution providers with proposals, and ultimately it's difficult for them to get to that desired outcome and to know what the return on investment should look like upfront. There's quite a lot of science that goes into it. Indeed, yes. There's a lot of variables that you need to consider. When you do then deep dive into it with your clients, what issues, before they've gone onto Power Pulse, do they identify for you? Our clients mainly struggle with comparing solutions and the solution provided. And if I can go more into detail, it's Things like how do they know if the system is priced correctly? How do they know if the quality of equipment will last them for the next 25 years? It's things like how do I know that my system is not over or undersized? How do I know what is the regulatory requirements for small-scale embedded generation within South Africa currently? Those are interesting questions. Errol, maybe if you could come in here and just give us some insights. Often in a new industry or a new sector, it's like the Wild West. There's all kinds of players. Do you have that as well in this uh, in this sector? Are they just legitimate players or are there some chances? That's one of the big 
strengths of the Power Pulse program is the pre-vetting I've done in the Power Pulse program is exactly what our industry requires. So the problem in the solar sector at the moment, there's more than 10,000 installers. It's an electrical industry uh, operation, but we've got unlicensed uh, contractors, not registered contractors. And because it's a very popular um, industry at the moment, all sorts of parties are getting involved in the industry. Uh, fundamentally, it's an electrically um, integrated industry, and fundamentally, these these require uh, legislated or companies that are registered and have licensed electricians. So, to the point, it's a huge issue. And one of the things with the Power Pulse program is the pre-vetting requires a lot of documentation um, to see that the company just as a small example, has a letter of good standing. So if there's an injury on site that you are covered um, by workman's compensation. So there are many, many sites. I see them every day. I'm called in to consult on these sites where there is, um, they are unlicensed, unregistered, um, uh, some great contractors, but unfortunately they, uh, it creates a problem in the industry. Uh, Mark, maybe you could come in there as the Director of Business Development at Dorman uh, Projects. Uh, give us an example of, of what you might hit uh, when you're going into that process. Let's just say, just to go outside of PowerPulse for a minute, because obviously any, everybody on PowerPulse has been pre-vetted, but what might you uh, come up against with uh, perhaps uh, people who would also be competing for projects? That's a very good question. Uh, most of the time is uh, if you get if you get contractors that don't understand the product, right, they don't understand value chain and supply, uh, they will underspec a, a, a site or incorrectly design a system, right? Then that often leads to them not pricing it correctly and often too cheap. Then they run into problems and they they sacrifice on quality and then the installation installation is only as good as as, as how how it's installed. So that that's where you sacrifice on quality and then ultimately it fails. Do you get called in to fix up other people's problems? A little bit like sometimes one uh, hears of people who build swimming pools and the original contractor doesn't do it properly. Is it similar in solar? We have had that on a few occasions, yes. And where do they go wrong on that specking, on the original specking? Yes. Um, I, I, maybe Errol might want to elaborate a little bit more, but it, it's, it's, it's definitely on – they don't know the products and they're trying to do it for as cheap as possible. And uh, unfortunately, Goodquip is Deedquip at the end of the day with solar. Right? It's just, just a euphemism. And, um, yeah, they don't understand it. And then, then, they come, then there's problems at the end of the day. Maudine, maybe uh, uh, that, that's a, a wonderful Afrikaans saying, good quip is dear quip. Uh, in other words, you get what you pay for. Uh, in your process, have you had to turn people down who wanted to get onto the system? When one talks about pre-vetting, or is it almost like a, 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 because you're pre-vetting, the chances don't, don't come to the bank? That's a good question, Alex. So we anticipated that to happen, and hence that's why we have a set criteria for onboarding a PowerPal solution provider. If I can go into detail into that criteria, it is, to Errol's point, it's a track record. It is how many installations have you done and what are your success stories? How happy are your clients, not just with your installation, but also your after sales, because this is a 25-year investment. We also look at um, the knowledge that sits within the solution provider, the technical capabilities, and um, the ability of the solution provider to handle commercial and industrial installations because in, in CNI is a lot different from residential. And what kind of experiences um, have, or how much experience do most of these clients have when they approach PowerPulse? And again, this, it, it's a complex area. You'd presume that people would read a bit or go online and and uh, and maybe know a little bit more about things. Or are most of the clients who come in here uh, come into PowerPulse really not having a high level of knowledge? So some clients they do have a little bit of knowledge, but some clients not at all. And hence that's why PowerPulse is there to hold their hands and to guide them along the process. So what I found 
clients are experiencing challenges with is identifying the strategic case, the financial case, and the technical and operational aspects that they need to consider. So you don't have to go online, start looking at the internet, trying to understand all of that. In fact, you just go into PowerPulse and all of those issues have already been unpacked for you in, in kind of a template form? Correct. So, you know, Alec, there's a saying that goes, the devil is in the detail. And that is exactly what our comparison report in PowerPulse solves for. It gives the client a detailed report on three solutions from three different solution providers. If I can go into more detail, we indicate to the client pricing across the three solutions and how to do that price for what peak calculation, which a lot of clients struggle with because they are not in the energy sector and they're not so well adverse in energy. We go further and we unpack the quality of the equipment and the applicable warranties. We indicate to them how the system was sized in relation to the load profile, which is essentially the annual consumption of the client. And that will answer the question whether my system is undersized, oversized, or if it's sized appropriately. We also touch on things like O&M costs, so your operation and maintenance costs after your plant was installed, because that's very important in maintaining the system. And then most importantly, from a financial perspective, we unpack the cash flows for each solution. We indicate the payback period with the 12P tax incentive and without. So we accommodate both clients in that regard. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is PPC CEO Roland van Vanen. Roland, your results indicate a turnaround story that is near completion. Now that the balance sheet troubles have subsided, what does the next 12 to 18 months look like for PPC? Yeah, thanks, Justin. We're, of course, very pleased you know, that we didn't need any capital raise, uh, something that we promised to work hard for. And now we're just papering up the last loose ends. Uh, the next 12, 13 months are for us, to some extent, keep a focus on our operational excellence, making sure that the input costs that we are faced with um, are under control. Um, and where needed, you know, we are ready to step up our volumes in order to serve the government infrastructure projects across South Africa. Where do you think the most room for improvement lies within the numbers? I think we, we will obviously see a reduction in our administration expenses going forward, as there are still um, quite a lot of restructuring costs in there, legal fees, uh, consultant fees that have helped us. They will obviously fall out. And we're also not seeing yet the full benefit of our logistics optimization. So I expect that we have some more room there as well. And then midterm, um, we're very excited about some of the projects we're doing to replace electricity from ESCOM by solar electricity. Uh, but that will kick in only later. What's the status with the government infrastructure drive? Is it in full effect yet? Well, we don't yet see it. Um, but if, if we listen to our customers, if we listen to the government, and if you take, for example, a company like Raubex uh, that is seeing quite a good order uptake in its order book, you see a Sandral. Um, you know, I think we can be mildly optimistic that it will actually trickle down to a company like ours in due course. How important is the infrastructure drive to growth in the short to medium term? Is there sufficient private sector demand to, to sustain growth? Or is the government infrastructure drive really needed from not only a PPC perspective, but other construction-related businesses? Well, I would say that it, that it is. Um, you know, South Africa, of course, facing the absolute necessity uh, to create more jobs. And we all know that infrastructure and construction therewith related is creating jobs. So whilst we are still seeing a good retail demand and also small and medium businesses, we need this impetus uh, that comes behind in terms of the tailwind to really lift economic job, job creation in South Africa. Roland, the last time that we spoke, you said that the government doesn't have an ear for the cement industry. How have the engagements been since we last spoke around the last two months or so? I think they've been a lot better. Um, we had a delegation of the Office of the President visiting our cement factory in Slurry. Um, I think that was very mutual beneficial. And these kind of conversations are necessary. Last week, um, our MD for South Africa and Botswana and Jumbo was in the Western Cape, had an engagement uh, with the local government over there. And we continue to seek, as a company and as an industry, uh, those kind of conversations in order to create this mutually beneficial agenda going forward. Roland, Zimbabwe is a jurisdiction in which PPC operates. I know there's some 
complications or, or, or complexities around the accounting standards that are required, given that it's in a hyperinflationary economy. Can you just break that down for us or, or take us back a few steps and just run us through how the operations are in Zimbabwe and why it might reflect differently in the numbers from the accounting standards perspective? So if we just look at it from a market point of view, operations point of view, and, and uh, cash, you know, things that probably you and I better understand than the accounting rules. Um, we see a 30% growth compared to two years ago in cement volumes. That is a starting point. So it is good amount, which is logical because if you have currency that you see a strong inflation, you would like to invest in something that is durable. Uh, how with con construction, housing is in demand. We have seen such a strong demand that we've actually imported some products out of South Africa into Zimbabwe um, in order to make sure that the market stays supplied and we have overcapacity in, in South Africa. Another element that we look at closely is how much of our sales is in hard currency and how much is in local currency. And we've seen a nice 50-50 split. So we actually do still see quite a lot of hard currency transactions. Now, if you translate that into the finances, it becomes all very tricky. Um, and it actually goes way beyond my pay grade to understand it fully. So you would have to have a big chat with our CFO to go through that. The Public Investment Corporation or the PIC recently bought back into PPC after selling at relatively depressed levels a year ago, in investment management, they do tell you to buy low and sell high. So this is a little bit counterintuitive. But are we seeing some more increased institutional demand for PPC as a business now that there is a bit of transparency for the business and the balance sheet has been cleaned up? No, absolutely, Justin. So if we look at a week-to-week -week, uh, movement of our um, shareholder base, we have now seen consistent influx of institutional investors. Um, and to be honest, I think we're really clearly now an investable company. Uh, we have a good sound balance sheet. We have room to grow. Um, as and when the demand will come, we'll be ready to serve that market. So we hope um, and do not see anything against further institutional investments in the company. Roland, as a foreign CEO who's worked abroad, and I mean, you've been thrown to the wolves in the last two years, with coronavirus, um, obviously the July riots, which are idiosyncratic or unique to South Africa. Are you optimistic about South Africa as an investment destination and a place for business to thrive, or do you have your doubts? You know, I think if the South Africans truly pull together, um, they can achieve a lot more than that they're currently achieving. And what sometimes drives me a little bit crazy is that it just takes a long time before we've got everybody together. But once you rally, you know, I was recently speaking to someone who, who reminded us of the um, time when the World Cup came into South Africa. Crime was gone. You know, the country put itself on the world map. And it's world class, right? So you've got resources, natural resources, human resources. The only thing that stands in our way is probably ourselves. So that is what we need to overcome. We just put all our noses in one direction to make this country um, a better place for many people. As we've spoken about, PPC does operate in Zimbabwe. I'm sure you've been there as a result. Do you think South Africa, from an economic perspective, can potentially turn into a Zimbabwe-like situation? I think it's difficult to compare Zimbabwe to South Africa. A lot of the underlying drivers are, are very different. Um, and I must say that the last time I was in Zimbabwe, a couple of months ago, you actually see, uh, both at government level as well as at the economic, economic level, so many people who actually want to do the right thing. Um, and it's, of course, you know, it has its difficulties, it has its challenges. But what we build on is on the people who want to do good, um, be it in Rwanda, be it in DRC, be it in Zimbabwe, be it in Botswana, be it in South Africa. Lastly, Roland, you just spoke about the Soccer World Cup and the construction boom that came as a result in 2010. We've just received the news that South Africa is going to have the Cricket World Cup in 2027. A lot smaller in terms of infrastructure and the amount of stadiums that need to be built, but surely a tailwind for a company like PPC. I mean, any, any help does, does matter. No, no, absolutely. And uh, congratulations to South Africa on the awarding of the World Cup cricket. Um, slightly more boring than soccer, in my opinion, but hey, you know, everybody has his own sport. Uh, and obviously, we'll be there to help build the infrastructure necessary for it. Well, thanks for being with us this Tuesday, the 23rd of November. I hope you enjoyed your hour of power. We'll be back with the same thing tomorrow, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.